0: So, there's uh, two different kinds of scenarios that generally play out on a Daylight Savings Day. I'm curious, who among us fell into the category of, I got an extra hour of sleep this morning? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right. Which of you, poor saps like me, whether because of your own internal brain clock or because of small children, uh, ended up being awake for an extra hour this morning? Anybody else? Hey, there it is. All right. Uh, One day, one day. Welcome. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Groton Bible Chapel. Glad you are with us. Today we continue the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your own Bible, you can open up to chapter 21. If you started with us recently in the fall or the summer, you would have, we had a series called Unusable that we did over the course of the summer looking through different characters throughout the Bible that for whatever reason, the culture or religious leaders deemed unusable that God nonetheless used. And then we pivoted into fall. In the last couple of years, we've done a fall series, kind of launched taught, t- um, touching on hot cultural topics. We did good sex. And now we're back in Deuteronomy and that may have seemed kind of like a whiplash for some people, If you're new with us, we spend decent chunks of the year trying to preach through books of the Bible. And that's important for us. We want to understand the breadth of Scripture. And over the last few years, we've done John, we've done Isaiah, we've done 1 Peter. We're in Deuteronomy. And so as we we go through, that's a part of the rhythms of our year. And we'll take a break, and we'll do a small topical series, and then we'll come back. And again, preaching through different uh, uh, books of the Bible, and that's important for us. Today, we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Now, Deuteronomy, in the way of a reminder, was given to the people some 1,500 years before Jesus as they're about to enter into the promised land. And it was a law given to God's people, a second giving a law, the reminder of the law given to them as they were about to enter into the promised land. And we know that the law was given to set the people apart. They were to be different from everyone else. The law was given to limit injustice, right? To limit evil. And the law was given to demonstrate their need for a savior, we find out in uh, Paul's letter to Galatia, Galatians. And that's where we find ourselves today. And I'm just warning you, some something's going to be weird. We're going to read some weird stuff today. And before we get there, I want to I ask you a question, This may seem irrelevant, but it's very relevant, I promise you. How would you, if you needed to describe your need for an umbrella to a fish that had never seen the surface, how would you do it? Think about that. Why would that be a hard or weird thing to do? Well, it would be weird because water isn't something the fish knows apart from their existence it is a part of everything that they do. It surrounds them, it informs everything they do, it undergirds everything, it just is. And this idea of separating themselves from it is just foreign or strange. And before we get into Deuteronomy and some of, the, some of these difficult passages, I wanna point out that for many of us, in the same way that the fish, it's hard to see themselves apart from water. For many of us, it's hard to see ourselves apart from individualism. In our culture. And I point this out because a lot of our struggles with Deuteronomy and parts of the Old Testament, and this all makes sense, I promise you, has to do with the fact that we don't look through the same lens as the people of Scripture. We don't see things in the same way. In fact, we don't see things in the way most people around the world see them. If you grew up in America, you see things in hyper-individualistic terms, not in collective terms. And so I have four, four quotes just to kind of explain this to us. Tocqueville writes this, explaining individualism in America. He says, It is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows. He gladly leaves greater society to look out after itself. Such folk own no man anything and hardly expect anything from anybody. They form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and imagine their whole destinies in their hands. I can do my own thing. That's individualism. Not saying it's bad, I'm just saying it's individualism. Robert Bella, sociologist at Berkeley. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. This idea that I can express myself and I'm unique. That's individualism. Most of the world and most of history, that wouldn't make sense to them. But for us, it's important. It's individualism with it come this idea of authenticity Charles Taylor philosopher writes that the culture of authenticity is one where each one of us has our own way of realizing our humanity it's important to find and live out one's own as opposed to surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society previous generation religion political authority Half the movies Disney puts out the last decade or so is right as a young person rebelling against the conformity of their family. That's bad. Why? Individualism, it's our culture. At the end of the 20th century, roughly 70% of the world would not identify as an individualist, just 30%, including us. And what's so interesting about that, is that the rest of the people would identify as collectivist. And I point this out because just as the fish couldn't see the water, as we approach scripture, we miss this bias in ourselves. Last quote, this is from a a wonderful book called Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. It kind of brings a lot of this research together and points it out to scripture. Individualist societies tend to think of community as being the sum of the individuals. We bring out individual identities, characteristics, values, and talents, and the sum of this become our community. Individuals gather to make community. In collectivist societies, however, and get this, this is most of the world today, most of the world in history, and nearly everyone in scripture, okay? So this is everyone else other than us. In collectivist societies, the individual is the sum of the community. The community identity, characteristics, values, and talents form the identity to those who all belong to that community. Collectives are defined by the things they share with others, shared blood, interest, history, land, and loyalty. They define their core identity as being part of a group and distinction to other groups. They seek to make personal decisions in the interest of their group. They value interdependence, social harmony, and group welfare. Why do I say all this? Because in our culture, we, what I do reflects who I am. And one of the hard things as you read in Deuteronomy and you see these harsh punishments for things that challenge the social order and social harmony is because for the people of Deuteronomy, what I do reflects who we are. That's different. It doesn't reflect who I am, it reflects who we are. That's a collectivist society. Now, individualism isn't bad. One of the notable things we've gained from it is this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. That concept wouldn't make sense the most of church history, but we embrace it and it's good because Jesus would leave the 99 to find the one. He'd leave the mass to find the individual and that's beautiful. But I say this because as we come across punishments, prescriptions that seem uncivil or even barbaric, I caution us against the kind of cultural arrogance that we might tend to bring to the text, that these laws or their punishments have important theological implications because God is after holiness, but they have profound social implications for a people whose collectivist culture is more the norm historically and even globally than our own. I give thanks for the benefits of our culture, but as we go through and come across weird things, we should do so as observant learners and not as people with their noses raised. Yes, church, let's do it. So, as we get into the text, I have three goals today. One, I want to point out some things in the way that we interpret the text and hopefully give some tools today to equip us to better study the Bible for ourselves moving forward. Two, offer some historical backdrop for some of the odd things we're going to come across. And then, three, draw out, as we've done myself and Gary before, principles that translate into the New Testament as God doesn't change and we can think about in our own lives today. Point number one, God loves the lowly. God has a heart for the marginalized. God cares for the easily discarded. Deuteronomy 21 is where we find ourselves. When you go to war, again, he's talking to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land about what life is to look like once they're there. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God hands them over to you, And you take some of them prisoner. And if you see a beautiful woman among the captives, desire her and want to take her as your wife, you are to bring her into your house. She is to shave her head, trim her nails, remove the clothes she was wearing when she was taken prisoner, live in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. It's already getting strange for some of you guys. Shave her head, trim her nails. One, we have... First off, all of this undoing on the part of the woman was a physical representation of her leaving the, 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 the pagan uh, life behind. That there was a giving up of the practices from which she had come. And so this was a, a, a fresh beginning. There was a month provided for her to mourn that which she had to leave behind in the way of family relationships. After that, it says, you may have sexual relations with her and be her husband and she will be your wife. We'll just finish off one more verse. Then if you are not satisfied with her, you are to let her go where she wants, but you must not sell her or treat her as merchandise because you have humiliated her. Let's make it really clear. Just because you conquer, this is God telling the people, telling the men, just because you conquer, doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want to the conquered. This was different from the surrounding cultures. This was different from the customary practice. Just because you conquer does not mean you get to do whatever you please. What we get here is a provision from God, a protective provision. We get um, care and love for the woman who would become captive. Because if for whatever the reason he he found himself not wanted there was no favor there was an issue that popped up the language or the culture whatever the reason something got in the way she could not be sold treated as merchandise she had to be let go and you and me look at that i assume with quite a bit of cultural condescension the people at the time would have looked in that and be like wow that's a little bit radical you have to do that. Why? Because just because you conquer doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want with the conquered. God is raising the standard for how women were to be treated. I have one more principle here, but we're going to connect it with the next passage. Continuing in verse 15. If a man has two wives... One loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved bear him sons. Some have postulated, because this comes right afterwards, you can imagine a situation in which a man takes a wife, based on people who were taken captive, he takes a wife, and then he also takes an Israelite wife after. But because the first son he had was with the person who was not an Israelite, And she was the unloved. And then you have an Israelite wife with whom he has a son, that there's a favoritism issue. And so, this potentially being the situation that is addressed here. Verse 16: when the man gives what he has to his sons as an inheritance, he is not to show favoritism to the son of the loved wife as his firstborn over the firstborn of the loved wife. He must acknowledge the firstborn the son of the unloved wife, by giving him two shares of his estate. Because if you were the firstborn, you got a double portion of the inheritance. For he is the first fruits of his virility. That's an interesting phrase. What in the world does that mean? King James would say the beginning of his strength. If you were to poke and prod into the use of this phrase elsewhere, what he's basically saying here is the firstborn son is a demonstration that the man parts are working. that there's power and strength in the loins. Now, as a firstborn son myself, I have yet to be thanked for this. <laughs> but how interesting, especially in a culture when having children was so prized at the firstborn because being the first fruits of a father's virility gets a double portion as his reward. And he says, he has the rights of the firstborn. God looking out both for the unloved wife as well as the son of the unloved wife. God loves the lowly. He has a heart for the marginalized. He cares for the easily discarded. Now, there's an interpretive principle here that I wanna point out to you because I know people have really wrestled with this in their study of the word. And that's this. You look at verse 15, it says, if a man has two wives and you look at that and you think to yourself, does this mean that God is affirming polygamy? He says, if you have two wives, one love and the other unlove is, is God affirming polygamy here? And this is an example and you will see it elsewhere. And this is an important thing as you look at scripture because we even get it affirmed in the New Testament. We'll get there. We will see, that God will regulate the things he does not endorse or affirm. You will see behavior, culturally embedded behavior, that is regulated in order to limit evil and limit injustice, even though they are practices that God does not endorse or affirm. And probably most explicit was Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew 19. In a discussion with the religious leaders about divorce, verse seven. He says, they say, why why then? They asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Because Jesus was talking about the value of marriage. He told them, Jesus, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. What's Jesus saying? God regulated divorce. He regulated divorce, even though it opposed his original design. We see Jesus affirming that explicitly here. We get the same thing in other parts of the Old Testament. You might see, and even in the New Testament, the way slavery or indentured servitude is talked about. You may see things regulated that are not explicitly endorsed as a part of God's design. And so we have to remember that regulation is not endorsement. But coming back to the unloved wife, coming back to the son of the unloved wife, we have to remember that just because culture or a person does not value people does not mean that those people are not valuable. Just because a person does not offer what you feel like you want from them does not mean they are not worthy of care and protection. God loves the lowly. And we see this in Jesus We see in Luke 15, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And we could talk about prostitutes. We could talk about tax collectors. It were the sinners, people who were ridiculed and marginalized, sometimes based on junk they did, sometimes based on junk done to them. But I actually wanna focus in on one other kind of people. That's children. You see, children, parents, you be with me on this, lots of children have very little to offer, right? It is easy to find children to be an inconvenience. It is easy to find them an obstacle in the way of a greater and more important aspiration. We might say, they're not a blessing as God calls them, but a burden that we gotta minimize. They are noisy and distracting. They are needy and time-consuming and they're lowly. And in Matthew 19, then children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. The disciple didn't want children were near Jesus. Why would he waste his time on the children? And Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And like the unloved wife, and her child, whom God nonetheless saw and cared for and provided for. Your children, our children today may not offer exactly what you want. They may not contribute precisely to your aspirations, but as a church, we value them immensely. We cherish them because God cherishes them. We show patience to them because God is patient with them and us. We have so many volunteers who give their Sunday mornings their Wednesday nights who show up and whose very presence says to our kids, you matter. God loves the lowly. You could pick a number of different examples. This is just one. God loves the lowly. Two, we also see that God protects the unprotected. Deuteronomy 22, moving into the next chapter, okay? Again, some of the stuff might get strange. We'll get through it. If a man marries a woman, has sexual relations with her, and comes to hate her, okay? That's that's an interesting circumstance. And accuses her of shameful conduct and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman and was intimate with her, but I didn't find any evidence of her virginity. The young woman's father and mother will take the evidence of her virginity and bring it to the city elders at the city gate. The young woman's father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as a wife, but he hates her. He is accused, one more verse, he is accuser of shameful conduct saying, I didn't find any evidence of your daughter's virginity, but here's the evidence of my daughter's virginity. I don't know how many times the phrase my daughter's virginity, when we said in one, one passage, they will spread out the cloth before the city elders. Let me help you understand what's actually happening here. So when they say evidence of virginity, there's two major takes on what this means, One, and it has to do with the fact that that word virginity can be used interchangeably with the idea of adolescence or youthfulness, okay? And so one take is that a particular cloth was provided for the marriage bed and based on the happenings of marital union and the mess that it leads to, that cloth would have been collected and would have been kept as a demonstration of virginity. That's one take. The second take is that the parents would have provided proof that their daughter was menstruating up until she was offered in marriage. Why? Why does that matter? Because if a woman came into a marriage already pregnant with someone else's child, then what you have is a threat now to the inheritance promised by God that's supposed to follow a particular lineage. And here's where we, run, we bump into this as an individualist culture. like what's wrong with that? But in the context of a collective society, there's huge problems with that. You have social and theological implications here. And so with all that, what you actually have, and I mentioned this as my first point, taking all that into account, a special protection offered to the woman That would have been foreign to these people. A significant protection. Verse 18, then the elders of the city will take the man and punish him. Here's the message. Men, just because you're a man doesn't mean you can do whatever you please. What do I mean by that? Just because you're a man that doesn't like your wife doesn't mean you get to get rid of her. You don't get to make weightless and baseless accusations against her. You don't get to shame a woman and shame her family because you no longer find her pleasing. It doesn't work that way. God added a great cost to making such baseless accusations as a new protective measure for women. Now, having said that, we also see in this passage the seriousness of sexual sin. Because we find at the end that if there is no evidence of the young woman's virginity found, verse 21, they will bring the woman to the door of her father's house and the men will stone her to death. For she has committed an outrage in Israel by being promiscuous while living in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. That's a phrase used throughout, by the way, multiple times. Again, as a reminder, God insulates against the abuse of a young woman from a man simply wanting what he wants. Not being pleased with someone is no reason to discard them. But at the same time, we sexual sin is taken very seriously. Sin is taken seriously. So serious that you might say the wages of sin is death. Sexual sin and its consequences though, in John chapter eight, church, is actually brought to the feet of Jesus. And it leans on this particular text as well as Leviticus 20. And in John 8, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. And teach her, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? It says they're trying to trap him. Why? Because only Rome was allowed to do the death penalty. So if he said stoner, he'd get in trouble with Rome. But if he said she shouldn't be stoned, then he'd be subverting the law of Moses. It was a lose-lose for Jesus. So he stoops down, he writes something with his finger, and then he stands and he says, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone. Slowly they left one by one, starting with the elder. And Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What did Jesus not say? He didn't say she doesn't deserve to be stoned. Jesus never said she doesn't deserve death. She absolutely deserved death as all sinners do, you and I included. But he spoke to the men he said, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. You know what's so interesting about that is there was someone there who was without sin. There was someone there worthy to cast the first stone. And Jesus, being sinless, Jesus being worthy to cast the first stone, he didn't say, she didn't deserve death. He didn't say, I do not condemn you. The irony is that the one most worthy to cast the punishment deserved would choose instead to receive that punishment on her behalf when he went to the cross. When God who took on flesh would face the wrath of God on her behalf, on your behalf, on my behalf. And that last phrase, when he says, go and sin no more. How similar, how interestingly similar to the very last phrase in Deuteronomy. You must purge the evil from among you. That the ends is the same. Purge the evil. Sin no more. Purge the sin. Get rid of the sin. Do not continue sinning. That the goal in both cases is ultimately holiness. That the goal in both cases, ultimately intimacy with God. God loves the lowly. God protects the unprotected. Our last passage, Deuteronomy 23. It only gets more interesting. Go ahead and put the text up there. Go ahead and put, look at this. Could have skipped this, but I didn't for you. <laughs> okay. No man whose testicles have been crushed. already laughing. Come on, are you freshman boys? Come on now. Or whose penis has been cut off may enter the Lord's assembly. Today is the only day I've used that word in a sermon. Believe it or not. No one of illegitimate birth may enter the Lord's assembly. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation may answer the Lord's assembly. No Ammonite or Moabite may answer the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may answer the Lord's assembly. gonna focus in on those first two verses. This idea here is that worship does not have room for idolatry and in the context of Israel, not even the marks of idolatry. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you'll get prescriptions given to the people that seem really strange, and then when you look into the background, you find out it's because they were associated with idolatrous worship practices of the Canaanites or other surrounding nations. The crushing of the testicles, the cutting off of the male organ would have been associated with such things. And thus, those people were not to taint the assembly of the Lord with the markings of such idolatry. No one of illegitimate birth may answer the Lord's assembly. What does that mean? Well, there's a few different ideas, but one of the the weightiest propositions, which is actually tied to other parts of scripture, has to do with the, the fact that a man who would marry a woman who had not surrendered her pagan practices. And so an illegitimate birth referring to a man marrying a woman who worshiped other gods and then raising those children in that kind of a house that those people were not to come into the assembly of the Lord. What is the assembly? It was the gathering of God's people for several different kinds of things, but mainly worship slash festivals or the proclamation or declaration of war, national decisions. And so there were people who were a part of God's people who were not a part of the assembly and they were not to become a part of the assembly. I was talking with Brandon Bartz in between services. He pointed out, just something interesting here. We look at this, you're like, oh, poor them. Like, why should that be held against them? And, and one of the things he pointed out to me is a lot of these people wouldn't have even wanted to show up again because of the collective mindset. Because what I do is a reflection of who we are. That's just so different from how we think of these things. But there was not room in worship for idolatry, for even the marks of idolatry. P.E. Brown says, there's no place in the assembly of the people of the Lord for those involved in idolatrous rituals. There's just no room. As I was thinking through this this week, for us in principle, we're coming into the last season of the year and thinking in particular about how does idolatry get in the way or creep in? This this idea of idolatry, this thing that opposes God's sufficiency. What is idolatry? Idolatry opposes God's sufficiency. Whether it's looking to other gods, looking to a bank account, looking to an image, looking to a family. Things that compete with God's sufficiency in your life, ultimate sufficiency in your life. Idolatry rebels against God's sufficiency in your life. And for them, it played out in a number of different ways. For us, I found one example in the New Testament that I wanna end with today. And that's in Paul's letter to Colossae 3.5. He says, therefore put to death, he lists a bunch of things, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil, desire, and greed. And that word greed in particular, he says, which is idolatry. Some of your Bibles say covetousness or avarice. Luke 12, Jesus says, Watch out and be on guard against the same word, all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. What does that word greed or covetousness, or what does that Greek word mean? You look up a number of Greek lexicons, you'll come up with these kinds of definitions. It is the striving for material possession. It is the immoderate desire for more. It is a lack of satisfaction with what God has provided you, which in our world sounds kind of relevant. Now we are entering into what is for many the six most consumeristic weeks of the year. What begins before Black Friday and finds its consummation in Christmas is for many the most covetous season of our existence. In a season that should be grounded in gratitude and generosity, we find ourselves tempted and overwhelmingly so by the constant need for more or discontent driven by comparison. Now, maybe not for you, but perhaps... You need to get your kids more, and that's the result of discontent driven by comparing them to their peers. Now, I love giving gifts. I'm a parent, I got four little ones. Few things in this world rival the joy I feel when my child gets to open up something I know they've been looking forward to. I know that they need. Like giving a gift, there, there's few things that rival the kind of joy that you get with being generous. There's something deeply in tune with the rhythms of the gospel when it comes to being generous but sometimes the lines between generosity and covetousness actually get a little blurry. I'm not saying this to condemn, but to caution. So hear this. If you find yourself as a member of the wealthiest people in history, unsatisfied and longing for the luxuries of the people around you or the influencers you follow, you may have an idolatry issue. If you find yourself purchasing things born out of a comparison driven by discontent, that may be an idolatry issue. If you find your children on a day that is supposed to be all about celebrating the birth of their savior, if your kids on that day are more excited about a fat man in a red suit than they are Jesus, then you have an idolatry issue. And how do we respond? We do what Jesus said. He said, watch out, be on guard. It is possible to be generous and content. It is possible to be people who love to give But as Jesus said, recognize that life is not about abundant possessions. It's about so much more. And within the context of Deuteronomy, the difference between us and them is these people who had the markings of idolatry on them, they were not allowed to enter into the assembly. That was just cut and dry. It just is what it was, was what it was. The difference for us today is that an intercessor came, a priest came in the person of Jesus, a sacrifice came in the person of Jesus. That when Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that we couldn't and he died the death that we deserve, that as our high priest, as our intercessor, the baggage that we bring, the marks that, that we wear, whatever it is that burdens you, that those things no longer keep you from entering into the assembly, which by the way, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word assembly is the same word in the Greek New Testament used for church. And so no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you today because of Jesus who intercedes on, a, a, on your behalf at the Father's side, because of Jesus, you get to come through these doors, you get to enter into, into community, and because of what he's done, there's nothing keeping you back from entering into the assembly, from being a part of the community, from being a part of his people. You are his, purchased by his blood. God loves the lowly. God protects the unprotected. And worship has no room for idolatry. But fortunately, God didn't let that keep him from dying for the idolaters, right? So let's keep that on our mind this season. Let's get the idolatry out of our house. Let's focus in on Jesus. Let's celebrate who he is and what he's done. Let's be generous. Let's be his people. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you. For the book of Deuteronomy, for the lessons that it gives, for the way that it ties to your gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would be challenged and confronted. Lord, that you would find that your spirit would shine light into the nooks and crannies of our own hearts. God, you are good. You are sufficient. Help us, Lord, bring to light in our own lives what what are those things that are competing with you, that we may cast them aside, that we may turn from them, that we may seek you and trust you and put our hope and confidence in you. You are good. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.